We'd like to welcome everyone today. If you're a guest with us today, we're so glad you're here. We welcome you this morning. Thank you for being with us. Praise God. You may be seated this morning. Through the help of the Holy Ghost for a few moments this morning, I want to talk to you about something that I guarantee you may make some of you uncomfortable from the standpoint. It's always uncomfortable when someone challenges us to move past where we are. And so... It's my desire today not to make you uncomfortable because of the content, but hopefully through the power of God that would challenge you to move past where you are. The Gospel of John, if you could say that one book of the Bible is to be put above every other book, which I don't believe you can say that, but if you had to pick one, I would make a strong argument to you today that the Gospel of John probably is the most important gospel and the most important book in all of the Bible. There are several reasons I say that. Number one is that, in case you don't know this, your Bible... Or if you have a Bible, or if you've seen a Bible, it comes in a particular order, Genesis through Revelation. However, it wasn't written in that particular order. And there is a a theme throughout Scripture that we find that are two important bookends. We pay attention the first time something is mentioned, and we really pay attention to the last time something is mentioned, because the first and the last words are very important. And the book of John is the gospel of John, even though it is put put in your Bible, in my Bible, it's put with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, kind of right there in the middle of the transition between the old and new. The gospel of John was actually the last book written. It came some 60 to 70 plus years after Calvary. It was written somewhere between 100, 105, maybe even 107 A.D. To give you a little context, the book of Acts was written around 60 to 61 A.D. The other Gospels were written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written in the 50s and the 60s, not 1950, 1960. The 50s and the 60s. And John's gospel is the last book written. And there is some debate within this in my study, and I'm not anywhere an archaeologist or a scholar. It's just some study, reading different things and kind of spitting out the bones and getting the meat. My opinion is that the gospel of John happens when John leaves the Isle of Patmos and returns to Ephesus to live out his final days. And so the city of Ephesus, at the time where John writes his gospel, I'm getting there, just give me a moment. When the time that John writes his gospel, there are somewhere estimates of upwards of 10 million believers in the world. And I'm not talking about 10 million fractured where you have, you have Methodists and Baptists and this and that. It was one 
belief system at the time John wrote this. It had not begun to fracture. Things begin to fracture around the 3rd and 4th century when you have Constantine come along and, and, and the rise of Catholicism begins to take place. But at the time that John writes his gospel, at that moment, there is one belief system. Everyone at the time that John writes his gospel is still following the teachings of the early apostles of Peter. And those that were there at the book of Acts. And so at the time there were some 10 million. In fact, in the city that John writes his gospel, where the city of Ephesus was, a, was, a, was an amazing place. One of the most amazing places in all of the ancient world at the time. There was estimates that in the city of Ephesus alone, there were somewhere around 80,000 believers in the church of Ephesus. Not only did they have that, but in that city of Ephesus, they had a, a beautiful, amazing library that had all the scrolls of the Old Testament, had all of Paul's letters in it, had all of the other writings, even the books that are not in the Bible, had all of this, this at Paul's, at, at John's, Availability, And so, can, I, can we just stop for a moment and just imagine, there is John, maybe he's in a house somewhere, he's, he's in a room and he's got a table and he's got all this stuff spread out and he's got Matthew and he's got Mark and he's got Luke and he's got, he's got all the books of the Old Testament, he's got Paul's letters stacked over here, the ones we know about and the ones that weren't in the Bible, he's got all this written out and he's going to start to to finalize, to pin, and I don't know when he began to write it, did he realize he was writing a climatic book, I believe he was just under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. But he begins to write his book. You see, Matthew traces the lineage of Jesus back to Abraham. Matthew talks, when he talks about Jesus, he traces him back to Abraham. Because Matthew's trying to get the Jews to understand that Jesus came from the lineage of Abraham. Luke, who was a Gentile, he traces the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam because Luke wanted to know that Jesus came from the beginning of everything. But when John starts his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he continues and said, and the Word is made flesh and dwelt among us. So he said, Matthew, you take it to Abraham. Luke, you take it to Adam. I'm going to take Jesus all the way back to the very beginning of all of this because Jesus and God are the same thing. And John begins to write this gospel. John chapter 1, he talks about this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. He begins to explain the, the glory of God. Who is, we, we saw him. The only begotten Son. And in John chapter 2, we find something unique. Everything in John's gospel was uniquely placed there for a reason, for a purpose, that John's trying to convey what he started off conveying in the first chapter. Chapter 2, we know the story. A lot of us know the story. John chapter 2 was the famous story that Jesus turned the water into wine. I find this unique. I was listening in the day and I was challenged by this. Oftentimes I've misquoted that quoted that. I didn't understand the Greek language and the tense by which it would use, but there was a part there. We know the story. Some of you, forgive me a second, I'll repeat it, but Jesus is at the wedding and, and, and his mother was there and they start running out of wine at the wedding. And there was an actual a law that says at a wedding 
that if the host ran out of wine, the punishment for him to be taken outside the city and stoned. You best have some good wine for all that. And so Jesus is there at the wedding and his mother, which if you read it closely, which I went back and read it closely and looked at this in this context, I think she had, I think Mary might have been the wedding planner. I'm being serious. I don't think Mary comes across as a busybody, as, as, as a nosy person. I think she was sort of kind of in charge of the deal because she comes up to Jesus and said, hey, we got a problem. We're out of stuff. And I know you know how to take care of it. And I often say this. He turns to her and the Bible says, he says, woman. What do I have to do? What do I have to do with this? But actually, I, I went back and I heard this and I went back and looked at it. And, a, and I, I read some of the Greek scholars opinion. And when he says the word woman. It's not like we, like I've read it, or maybe you've read it and said, woman, what's... The actual word woman there was the highest form of respect and love. It was the highest form of word for a woman for respect and love. So was it woman? What are you... T- what, what are you... What? It, was, it was woman. What, what, what can I... It was, a, it, was a, it was an appeal of love and respect because he didn't want his mother and the bride and the father of the bride and the host to be condemned. It was a, it was a note of love and compassion. And then we get John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is one of the most pivotal verses in all the Bible. Notice this, that John three sixteen. can I just talk for a moment? Is okay? I'm having fun. If you're not having fun, come back next week. Maybe I'll be more entertaining. Notice John chapter 3, 16, right? You go to the Super Bowl. John 3, 16. Woo, yeah, yeah, believe on him. Everlasting life. That wasn't written till after Acts. They had already been doing what the book of Acts said happened. John comes back and says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That was not a declaration of beginning that was a declaration of completion. Book of Acts had already been spoken. It had already been taken place. And John chapter 3 is one of the most pivotal scriptures because that's the the one where this guy named Nicodemus comes. I may never get to my message today. We're just going to go all over the place. Just going to stay in John. This is the book, this is the one Nicodemus, who was one of the rulers of the, the city, sneaks to Jesus at night. He says, hey, what do I got to do? I'm hearing what you're talking about. I like what you're saying. It's, it's, it's something's, it's, it's hitting my heart. Now tell me, what do I got to do? And John's writing this because he, he wants you to know something when he's writing this. And John says, you got to be born of the water and of the spirit. And Nicodemus looks and says, I, I, that doesn't even make sense to me. How can, I, how can I go back in my mother's womb and be born the second time? And Jesus stops and says, you're not getting it. 
said, you got to be born of the water and the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then Jesus said, verse number seven, he said, marvel not that I say to you, you must be born again. Marvel not, that, marvel not what I just said to you. Then verse eight comes and John's writing this, okay? When is John writing this? Well, we've established that. He's writing this 40 years after the book of Acts. 70 years the 40 years after the book of Acts is written, 70 years after the outpouring that was recorded in the book of Acts. Okay? Do we have any 70-year-olds in here? Brother Mallory's our, our lone 70 year Brother, let's get that is true. Still chugging along. Brother Mallory, what year were you born to be 70 years? 1945, 46? 45. So in 1945, at the end of the World War II, the Holy Ghost was outpoured. And now here we are in 2017, seven years later, and we're finally going to write about it. It's already been happening for 70 years. At the time it started with 120, it's grown to 10 million. Now we're going to write about it. Do you think if we're going to write about it, we're going to contradict what 10 million people have already done? Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. I'm about to just get on it right now. Do you think after 10 million People have done something that was recorded 70 years ago that now I'm going to come back and change it? No. What am I going to do? I'm going to confirm what they've already been doing. Because I want my book to be a confirmation, not a contradiction. Why would John contradict something he's already experienced? He's trying to confirm it, not contradict it. 70 years and 10 million people. And John was an instrumental one in starting the church there in Ephesus that had grown to 80,000 people. Why would he contradict himself or contradict the word of God? And so John says in verse 3, chapter 3 and verse number 8, put it up there. You're already on it. Who's back there? Good job. He says it. The wind bloweth where it listeth, thy earth sit down there, enough canst not tell where it's coming, where it goes, so everyone is born of spirit. And most of us read that and go, I don't understand what he's saying. It sounds cryptic to me. Let's move on. But unfortunately, that wasn't the way it was written. We've, we've, we've translated to be that way, but that's not the way John wrote it. The word there, wind, W-I-N-D, does not mean breeze in the summer. Summer breeze makes me feel. No, that's not. That's the wrong song. That's not Jesus. Help us, Lord. That's a different song. That word wind there is not the word wind you think of. That word wind means spirit. Not little spirit like your spirit, but big spirit, God's spirit. The spirit bloweth, meaning the spirit moves. It moves, blows, movement. The spirit's going to move where it listeth. And you're going to hear the sound there. That word sound can mean many things. It can mean sound, big, loud, bang, clap of the hands, move. That's not what the word sound, the word. That word sound there means phoneo, which is the Greek word from which we get the translation phonics, hooked on phonics. That's where it comes from. Phoneo, which means syllables, words, or languages. So John's trying to explain to them, the spirit bloweth where it listed. You hear the, not just sound, but what is it? Languages, words, syllables thereof. You can't tell where it's coming from. You can't tell where it's going. It's not up to you. You're not the author of it. He's the author of it. 
He just gives you the utterance. It's not your words, it's His words. You provide the sound, you provide the voice, but you can't tell where it's coming from. You can't tell where it's going from. In fact, medical science has hooked up things to people's brain. And medical science says that when a person is speaking in tongues, that the language part of your brain when you and I speak, the language part of your brain and the frontal, lobe, the, the frontal lobe of your brain work in harmony for you to be able to coherently speak. Sometimes some of us get a little mixed up there in translation. But to have co- coherent speech, the linguistic part of your brain and the frontal lobe of your brain have to work in harmony because the frontal lobe of your brain is the place of decision. It's the place that controls But when you hook somebody up that's speaking in tongues, this is not done by somebody that's trying to prove. It was done by a neuroscience, neurologist in the University of Pennsylvania, liberal school, non-believing school, hooked people up, and he found something unique, that when people speak in tongues, the frontal lobe's at rest, and the linguistic side is lit up, which doesn't make sense scientifically, because it's saying that the, the language is being coming from a source unknown to the mind. That's not me saying that. That's not even the Bible. That's a scientist saying that. And it's not a scientist that's a preacher. It was a scientist that's just simply a guy trying to figure some stuff out. He said, I can't understand this. But he said, when, when he hooked this woman up, he brought her in there, he hooked her up. My favorite part of that whole story, though, is he hooks her up, right? And he asks her, you've heard me tell this before, he hooks her up and he, he didn't really understand all this. And he asks, he goes, he goes, now, I don't really understand how you do this, how, you, how speaking in tongues works. He says, uh, now, I'll give you some time. I don't know if you have to work it up or whatever. <laughs> and this is precious African-American sister, and she sat there for a moment, and he said this, and finally she said, you don't worry about it. You get out that room, and you go over there in your little room, because he had another room with this glass wall. He said, you go over in that room. I'll take care of the rest. Me and Jesus got this. And as soon as the door shut, she just went off. She was going down. And he said the linguistic size was lit up. The frontal lobe was at rest. And he said, I can't understand because it doesn't make sense. Because in order for someone to coherently speak, those both have to work in harmony. And the Bible says when you pray in the spirit, your mind is at what? Rest. And Paul says, and John says, you can't tell where it's coming, where it's going. And then he stops. Boom. Colon. Stop. Breaks. Ah! That's what it means. Put on the brakes. Time out. Put on the brakes. Because I'm about to give it to you right now. I'm about to explain to you this, the beginning of the sentence with the end of the sentence. Colon. Brake lights. Two brake lights. Stop. Whoop. So is. So is a few. So is those who choose to be. So who those who want to be. Again, is this a contradiction or a confirmation? See, if you put it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, together in the gospel, I don't know if I'll get them. I'm just having too much fun. I'm just, I'm putting this down. If you put Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John together, guess what? You can make this into whatever you want to be because it sounds like, well, he doesn't really mean that because, you know, really he means this and that. But if you put John where John's supposed to be, John at the end, after all this has taken place, John is a moron. John is a moron and a false prophet because he's just lied to everybody. And he's telling to tell 10 million people, hey, guess what? You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do all that. 
But John says, I want to let you know, every one of you that is born of the Spirit. So is every one of you that's born of the Spirit. So you can take this line. So is everyone in the born of the Spirit. You can take that line and you can shift it to the front of the Spirit, in front of the sentence. And it can read like this. Everyone that's born of the Spirit will have the Spirit blow where it listeth. And you're going to hear the sound, but you won't tell where it's coming for where it's going. And it keeps the sentence contextually intact. So John's telling us these things. I could go for hours on that. It's just too exciting. He's telling us these things. He's not contradicting anything. He's confirming. So John chapter 3, he turns the water into wine. John chapter 3, oh, by the way, we have to clean up afterwards. I don't know, let me just think about that. It just came to me. It was the voice of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. We must break down in Jesus' name. See, if I said it in Lounsevich, you'd forget it. If I say it now, you remember. John chapter 2, he turns the water into wine. John chapter 3, he talks about the water and the wind. There's a theme here, you got it? You get the theme? What's the, that same thing keeps popping up. First chapter 4, here we go, ready? It's the famous one where Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. And where does he go? He goes to the well where the woman is. He sends Peter and the disciples away. And this is another thing for another day, but he says to that woman, if you only knew who I was, and you knew the gift, and that word gift is the same and only time that word gift was, is used until the book of Acts chapter 2. It's the same word. It's a gift, meaning it's something that only can be given by a deity. It's a de deity gift. It's a gift, meaning that Greek word means a gift that comes from a deity. And guess what? This is cool. John is, is telling this story because Jesus tells the woman at the well about the gift. And Peter, in Acts chapter 2, talks about receiving the gift. Where did he get that from? After, that, after Jesus got, he, I think he went back to that lady and said, hey, psh, what did he talk to you about? Because he told you stuff I don't think he's telling us. And she said, he's talking about if we've got a gift, this gift he wants to give me, if I drink from the water he has, I'll never thirst again. And that word never thirst again doesn't mean physical thirst. That literally means, the translation means I'll never thirst for this world again. And finally we get to where I'm trying to get to in John chapter 5. So we got John chapter 2, John chapter 3, John chapter 4. Everything in John is there for a reason. And we get to this story. John, he's, he's, we get to this sort of interesting story, John chapter 5. Says this. After... The, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. All this is very significant. I'll go back and we can go through it, and I'll tell you exactly why all this is mentioned. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, and blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. 
For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool, trouble the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water. There's water again. We get water, 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 water. Whosoever then after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole and whosoever and whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lie, when Jesus saw him lie and knew he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, wilt thou be made whole? He said, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And the infant man answered, Sir, I have no man. When the, when the water is troubled, put me in the pool. But while I am coming, get that word coming. That's an important word. We're going to get back to that word in a second. While I am coming. Wait a minute. I thought you needed a man to get you in the pool. Why are you coming if you need a man? Another step it down before me. And Jesus said this. Rise. Take up your bed. And walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took his bed and walked. And the same day was the Sabbath. And Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, Is it not the Sabbath day? Is it not lawful for thee to carry thy bed? He answered to them and he said, Me whole. He, he had that made me whole that said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Now let's go back for a moment, and I'm going to be trying to be as quick as I possibly can because there's so much stuff in here we could just get bogged down. First of all, we start off and John says, after these things there was a feast. What feast was this? Well, there's several clues that we get to what feast it could be. First of all, we get the time of year it was because they were laying out at the pool and were getting in the water. More, more than likely that it means the water would have been a temperature comfortable enough to get into, or there would have been a temperature comfortable up to lay out there. So that it pretty much eliminates, and there's some other clues in there that we can't really get into, that eliminates Passover. A lot of people say this was Passover because there was three feasts. This is one of those times I'm so excited, I could just have a mirror and talk to myself. <laughs> I just like getting into all this stuff. I, I probably lost half of you, but I'm just having too much fun. Just going to get a mirror. Hey, come on, somebody. I'll be my own preaching. <laughs> I'm preaching so good, i got to give myself an amen. <laughs> he said, the feast, we know it's not Passover because there were some other clues there in that. And, and we know it's not, there's three feasts. There was Passover, Pentecost, which was the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Trumpets. Those three feasts mean every male that was a part of Israel, whether or not you lived in Jerusalem or not, every male had to return to Jerusalem. Everybody had to come. Jerusalem was packed. Thousands would come. That's when the book of, when, when, when the, when the, when the Spirit of God was poured out in the book of Acts and it spilled out on the street and all these people from all these different countries and all these different places were there, they weren't there for tourism. They were there because it was a feast requiring them to come back. And do you think God didn't know that? Because he brought them here. They didn't. Where'd they go when they went home? Boy, God's smart, isn't he? And so we know it wasn't Passover, and we know it's not the Feast of Trumpets because that's a fall feast, and that takes place in John chapter 7. So the only one left possibly it could be would be Pentecost. So Jesus walks in the sheep gate. Why is the sheep gate important? Why did he walk through the sheep gate? Why did John tell me? I don't need to know what gate he came into. John, why do you have to tell me he came in the sheep gate? Why? Because the sheep gate was the gate by which they brought all the animals into the city that were coming to the temple to be sacrificed. 
It was the gate of sacrifice because that's where every animal that came into. Plus, the pool of Bethesda, most archaeological scholars believe that was the pool by which they washed the animals first. So John tells us, I want to let you know something. It's Pentecost Sunday, and the sacrifice is walking through the gate. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. He walks in the gate. And guess where he comes to? What's Bethesda mean in the Greek? House of mercy. Jesus on Pentecost comes through the gate of sacrifice and walks into the house of mercy. Guess what? If you go out the sheep gate and you hang a Louie, and you walk a little while, about 100, 150 yards, you come to this place, very significant place. In fact, I'll describe it to you. They describe it like this. It's a place that looks like a skull. In fact, we'll call it Golgotha, later to be known as Calvary. So you got Calvary about 150 yards away. You've got the gate of sacrifice. You've got the house of mercy. And all this is taking place on the day of Pentecost. Now you want to know why John put a story about a little lame man in the Bible. John wasn't just telling a story about a lame man. John was making a point. And he shows up to this guy. And there's people all around. And, and, and this is significant because this event of the troubling of water, it goes back to the, the time when Zerubbabel rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. There was, it laid in ruins. And they came back and they rebuilt the city of ruins, the city of Jerusalem. And when the city was complete... The story goes that the water suddenly, they noticed that the water began to be troubled. And I don't know if someone fell in. I don't know if they were like walking the edge and fell in or someone saw the water and said, that was neat, let's touch it. But whoever discovered it figured, hey, when that stuff moves, the first person in gets healed. It wasn't a scheduled thing. It wasn't like, you know, Nine o'clock tomorrow morning, it's going to, they didn't know when. So the only thing you knew to do is you got to hang out where God's moving. You don't know when he's going to show up and when it's going to happen. But if you're not there, it can't happen. Why do I come to church every Sunday? There are times I come to church, I walk, and I'm going, what was I there for? I don't really know why. Because one day I'm coming and the water's moving. Hey, I can't tell you. Come back next week and the water's going to move. I can't tell you come back two weeks from now and the water's going to move. I can just tell you I've been there before when the water moved and I stepped in the water and the water was cold, but it chilled my body but not my soul. So guess what? I'm going to show up every Sunday whether or not I get something or not because every time I come, it's an opportunity for the water to be troubled. It may not be my turn today. It may be your turn. But I'm telling you, my turn's coming. My turn's coming. You watch out. And when my water's moving, you best get out my way. When my water starts shaking, if you're in my way, don't talk to me. Don't tell me about your week. Don't show me pictures on your phone. Because when my water's moving, I'm getting out of the way. You're getting out of the way. Because God is moving. And so he, this, this event started taking place where the water started moving. 
And so Jesus comes up to this guy. And notice he walks up to this fellow. There was hundreds there. They're all gathered around this pool. Hundreds of them there. They're all hanging out. Waiting for the water. And he walks up to this guy. Why? We find that he had been sick with an infirmity. He wasn't, didn't give any indication this is the way he was born. It, it indicates it's happened somewhere later in his life. 38 years he had been this way. Why was 38 significant? Well, first of all, at this moment, it had been 38, year, 38 centuries since the first mention of Messiah. 38 centuries. It was 38 years wandering around in the wilderness. I know the Bible says 40, but you've got to give two years for traveling because they went two years to Kadesh Barnea in preparation because they had to get Egypt out of them before they could get in the promised land. So they wandered around for two, two years and they wandered around for 38 years to get 40. So this 38 was significant to John and he put it in there. And another significant is at this time we know Jesus was about 30 years old. So this means this fellow had had this condition eight years longer than Jesus had been alive. And Jesus walked up to him. And, and he, the first words out of him is, do you want to be healed? Now let's stop for a moment and look at this in two different aspects. First of all, number one, that's the dumbest question. Duh! He can't walk. Of course he wants to be healed. That's like asking you if you haven't eaten in 10 days. Hey, you hungry? <laughs> well, I don't know. Really, I could go another 10 days. I'm good. I'm good. You just keep all that. I'm good. You know? And Jesus asked him this question. It seems so just dumb. Do you want to be healed? And we know Jesus doesn't ask any dumb questions. So why did Jesus ask him that? Well, let's take it farther. Man, I've got to hurry up. I might have to do part two next week. Let's do it real quick. The Bible says that it described the pool having five porches. Meaning there was five kind of overhangs around the pool. So this guy had been coming in this condition for 38 years waiting for his turn. If he really wanted to be healed... If I was him and you were me and I knew that water troubled, I'm first one in and I want to be healed, okay. This is the pool. This is me. I'm laying right here. And I'm watching that water. And the moment that water, I'm just going right in the pool. I'm getting in. I'm not, I mean, I'm having, I'm, I'm putting my finger right over the edge. I'm waiting for it. And the moment I'm, whoop, I got you. I got you. No, whoop, whoop. Fastest draw in the West right here. I got it. So if he really, why wasn't he there? If he really wanted to be healed, why was he here? Why wasn't he right here? I mean, I'm literally, I'd be right here, right here, right there. Ready? Is it moving? I don't know yet. I test it every once in a while just in case I missed it. What are you doing? I'm just testing it. Is it? No, I don't know. But I'm hanging out here. This is where I am. But no, Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to be healed? And he gives this excuse, well, you know, I don't have any man to help me. And when I'm coming, somebody gets in front of me. Wait a minute, I thought you couldn't move. How are you moving when I'm coming? So if you're coming, what does that imply? There's a distance you've got to travel. 
So what does that tell me? That tells me he wasn't hanging out at the pool. He was back underneath the porches. And this is totally out of the way today, but five porches representing the, the law. You see, the law could reveal your sin, but couldn't help you out of your sin. The law could reveal to you yourself, but the law couldn't help you do anything yourself. The law could show you you needed deliverance, but the law couldn't deliver you because the Bible says the law was powerless to deliver. But yet, he was hanging underneath all this. Away from his deliverance. Because you know why? Because you know after a while, underneath that was where it was the most comfortable. It was on the shade. It was easy, you know, the, the sun wasn't beaten down. And if God really loved me, he'd make sure that I was the first person in that pool. But you know what? I'm just, you know, if my life was just different, if I, if I was like Pastor Joel and I had this and I could do that, and if I was like this person or the bishop or whoever, I would be like, I really could do. If, if I only had that, and he started taking all this stuff. And Jesus, that's why Jesus said, there's the water. What? Do you want to be healed? And he says, well, but, 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 I don't have a God. I don't have a man. I don't have, I don't, 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 I don't. You see, his condition had become his normal. And your normal is defined by whatever condition or circumstances you grow accustomed with. Whether they're abnormal to me, they're normal to you. And when you let something become your normal, you become comfortable with where you are. And you make excuses why you can't get out of there. Because it's my normal. So Jesus wasn't challenging the fact he wanted to be healed. Jesus was challenging the fact that he had, been, he had come accustomed and settled for a new normal. He had gotten to the place, like a lot of us do, well, this is the way it's always going to be. This is my lot. I was just born this way. Well, this is just how it is. I'll never get past this. I'm just going to stay underneath the porch. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about how great God is. I'll, I'll, I'll know he's great. I can see him moving right there. My God, that guy got in that water. He came out. Man, that was awesome. But you know what? I wish one day that could happen to me. Well, why don't you get close to the water? Well, you know, I just, I just it's, it's easier here. Because you know what happens? After 38 years of living around, of, of, of lying around on that bed, he had a bed because we know later Jesus said, take up your bed. 38 years of hanging around. Guess what happens to your muscles when you don't use them? They start to go away. And so what he could do on year one, he couldn't do in year 38. And the longer you stay where you are, the harder it is to get out of where you are. Because the longer you stay in that condition and the more excuses you make, the more the power to get out. And what do we want? Well, if someone just would come along and help me out of this situation, if I could just get a man to help me, I could do it. And we want someone else to come and take care of what we got ourselves into because we've allowed ourselves to become accustomed 
to our circumstances and we have allowed ourselves to make excuses of why we are and why we can't change. I knew it was going to get comfortable because it just did. And we tell everybody, man, this water moves, man. You got to get in the water, got to get in the water, got to get in the water. We tell people, hey, I know where you can go. Go there, man, get in that water. God's going to do something. And we know it, but yet we don't even do it. We got people passing us every day, climbing over chairs to get in the water. We're sitting underneath the porch going, man, I wish I could get in that water too. It's just a little too far. Every time I try, someone gets in front of me. Jesus walked up to that fellow and said, hey, let me ask you a question. You've been here for 38 years. You've been here eight years longer than I've been alive. Let me ask you a question. Do you really want to be different? Do you really want to change? Or do you want to just stay like this for the next 38 years? At his age, somewhere along the line, he got a disease. He had some kind of infirmity. That means it was something that happened to him, something that he did to himself. Well, then, I don't know, something happened. He wasn't born like this. And Jesus asked him, do you really want to change? i got to ask somebody in here today, you talk about it, but do you really want to change? Well, you know, Brother Ray, if you, if you only knew this, and you only knew that, and you only knew, and, 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 and let me ask you, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you, do you really want to change? But you don't know how hard it is. Where did Jesus turn and say, now, I know it's hard, buddy. I know you've been through a lot, 38 years. I know. I know, I know it's been so hard. Oh, man, let me just, let's just hug it out for a moment. I know you, 38 years, I'm so sorry. Oh, man, it's been rough. He didn't tell him that. Jesus said, do you want to be healed? And the guy, he, the guy thought he was giving Jesus a good answer. He's like, you know, I want to be. I want to be healed. But every time I try to get up, somebody gets there for me. I just need somebody to carry me over. And Jesus didn't say, hey, yo. Marcus, come here. Okay, I'm going to blow. The water's going to move. You throw him in there. We'll be good to go. Are you ready? All right. Jesus didn't even address that. Watch what Jesus does. Jesus says, get up. Jesus asked him to do something that man thought he couldn't do. We always want God to do the action. And we do the reacting. But God sometimes wants you to do the acting. And he'll do the reacting. Oh, I'm going to say that one more time. Because that was too good to pass up. We always want God to act. And we react. God, if you hit me with some goosebumps, I'll get up out of my seat and I'll feel you. Hey! Sometimes you got to be Samson. you got to just shake yourself, baby. We want God to Act and we'll react because you know what? It's safe like that, right? Because if we, if we wait for God to act and we react, we can blame, well, it wasn't my time today. God didn't really come through for me. But God sometimes waits you to act and he'll react. He told the man, get up. Oh, what do you mean get up? I thought I got up and I'd been in the pool. Get up. He didn't say he hand. He lowered his hand, grabbed the man by the hand, began to pull up. He didn't say that. He told that man, he said, get up. I don't know if Jesus said it like that or not, but I think he would if I was Jesus. Get, get up! And then guess what Jesus asked him to do? He said, get up. Take up your bed. That word take up means literally to take on 
something and carry it. He didn't tell him to leave the bed there. He said, pick up your bed and let's go. You can either lay in your circumstances or you can get your circumstances on your back and you can start walking. You can let your circumstances be the excuse that keep you where you are or you can get your circumstances, get up, strap them on your back and start walking. It's your choice. Why? Because God can't work past your will. And the whole thing God asked that man that day was, do you want to be different? He was not asking him a question of faith. He was asking him a question of will. He believed it could happen. He was talking about it. He could believe it again. He said, when the water's troubled, people get in and you're healed. He believed. It wasn't a question of belief. It was a question of will. Do you want to be different? Do you want to change? Because the excuses were not an excuse of faith. They were an excuse of will. He didn't say, well, you know, my, my buddy over there, he got in the water and nothing changed. He said, every time someone gets in there, it happens. I just can't get over there. It wasn't a question of faith. It was a question of will. And when you get your will in line with your faith, See, we want to always blame it on faith. We want to just have faith. I got faith. Why is it not happening? Because you got faith. You got no will. And God can't work past your will. And so God's not asking you today, do you believe? You're sitting in a church for God's sake. You believe. The choice today is not if you believe. The choice is what's your will going to do about it? Are you going to sit underneath the porch because that's where it's comfortable and you're not exposed to the wind and the rain and the elements? Are you going to let that be that? Are you going to finally say, okay, I'm getting up? You say, well, how can he get up? I'll tell you how he get up. Because he was on the day of Pentecost sitting in the house of mercy. A walk away from Calvary. You know what? The Bible says take up your cross and follow. You know what my cross sometimes is? A cross sometimes is everything up to this moment. Sometimes my cross is everything up to this moment. Sometimes I've just got to take up my circumstances, my issues, my hurts, my pain. i just got to take them up, strap them on my back, and walk forward. i just got to move. I can't stay. And guess what happens? I love this. This is awesome. And I'm, I'm finalizing with this. This is so awesome. Not awesome like amazing. Just crazy how people are. The, the dude gets up 38, 38, 30, 30, 38 years. Maybe a 38-year-old here? 38 years. <laughs> By faith. <laughs> <laughs> 38 year old of 38 38 years he gets up and he walks he's carrying his bed he's got a smile on his face and what happens people start saying dude what are you doing they weren't my goodness man what happened to you today Woo! 38 years you've been, oh my goodness, this guy, let's dance together and rejoice. They said 38 years. I said, 
what are you doing? You know it's against the law to carry your bed on the... What? Don't I get a pass? I've missed 38, 38 of these things. It's okay on year 38 if I... They didn't say, hey, we're excited for you. They said, hey, hey, what are you doing? When people start trying to question what you're doing, that's not a sign you're doing something wrong. That's a sign you're doing something right. When you start having people criticize you and start people tearing you down, you need to get your shouting shoes on because you just got realized you're doing something right. Do you know why dysfunctional families are dysfunctional? Seriously. Do you know why dysfunctional families are dysfunctional? Because every time someone wants to change, the others attack them. Because if they change, it now makes them convicted that they've got to change. So they stay dysfunctional because when one starts to shake and get out of that nonsense, everybody turns on them. And they attack them. And they make that person feel like they're doing something wrong or they've done something worthless or they're no good because they're trying to change. How can you be this way? How can you? Do? And the only reason they're doing that is because that person's actually doing something right. And when someone starts to criticize you, why do you act like that way? You know you can't act like that. You don't, you don't have the right to act like that. You need to say, thank you very much. I'm so excited you told me that. Why are you excited? Because, baby, you just confirmed to me that I'm on the right path. You want to criticize the way I do? You can't come to church and act like that. You can't. Don't you know what? Yeah, baby, keep talking. Because the more you talk to realize I am on the right path. Because if I was like you, you wouldn't be talking to me. And I don't want to be like you. Because you've been under that porch for the last 38 years. I'm getting out of this thing. So my challenge to you today is not a challenge where you're going to come and you're going to fall on the altar and you're going to weep and shed a few tears. And Oh, God! Oh, I want to change, I believe. But only if I had a man. We want... I heard, I heard, brother, we, were, we went to a conference the other day, and Brother Hughes was there, and Brother Hughes made this amazing statement. He said, we're addicts. He said, we come to church, and we don't think God move until, unless we have a certain feeling. And he said, addicts are addicted to feelings. He said, God never taught us to be addicted to a feeling. We're supposed to be addicted to him and his word. So you know what we're looking for today? Okay, God. All right, I ha- we've heard the Holy Ghost. We've let God prick us. Now we want this big emotional. Oh, I got it now. I'm going to do it. I just... <laughs> really, what we're wanting to do is want everybody to come up behind us and go, oh, that's it. Oh, we love you. We're going to be there for you because we want attention. We have no, no, oh, this is good. We have no intention of changing. We just like the attention. I know there's sometimes, oh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. It's okay. I'm already in trouble. I know there's sometimes God moves and some, it's all over somebody. But I have a hard time believing when the, when the person leading the service says, okay, let's all sit down. And you got somebody over there going, oh, oh, that's really God. 
The Bible says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. You can't, if you're out of control, that's not God. This is a little pastoral moment, 30-second public service announcement. If you're out of control, that's not God. Because God never desired for you to be out of control. So my question to you today is, do you really want to change? Do you really want to change? Are you going to continue to keep making excuses of why it can't happen? But Brother Ed, I believe God's this, God's awesome. And you know what's even crazy is? There apparently, that little fella was telling other people. That's what's crazy. I guarantee you, one, you know, the new dude shows up with a bum leg, right? He's, he's hobbling along. He's there. And the guy says to him, look, I've been here for 25 years. Let me tell you something. I'm, I've learned a thing or two. If you get next to that water and you fall in when the water's troubled, you're going to walk out of your heel. It's awesome. I've seen it happen time and time again. Well, why are you back over here? Well, we won't talk about me today. I'm talking about you. But you know what? His faith was there, but his will. His will kept him where he was. Do I believe in this room today that every one of you believes God can do anything? Absolutely. I don't think you'd be here today if you didn't believe that. My question is, does your will match your faith? Does your will match your faith? I know we often talk about will as a negative thing. Oh, God, not my will, but thine be done. I know that's what we talk about. It's like a, it's like a, a pious thing, to, our will, will. It's a bad thing, bad thing. But God gave you a will for a purpose. It can be what makes you, what breaks you. The will is a powerful thing. It's a will is something we have that no other being has as a will, a free will. And look, where was the devil at the Tower of Babel? There was the devil at the Tower of Babel. That was people's will coming together in one focus. That's the power of a will. Your most powerful weapon right now is not your shout. Your most powerful weapon is not your herc and jerk. Your most powerful weapon in your arsenal is your will. Your most powerful weapon in your arsenal is not your, it's not your, your speaking in tongues and your laying hands and your prophesying to everybody. That's not it. Your most powerful, powerful is your will. And you can stay where you are and you can live there and you can come to church week after week and talk about how great God is and stay where you are. And year after year after year, you can get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. Or you can decide today, enough is enough. Get up. Roll up your bed. Strap it on your back. And say, I'm going forward in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me today? can I do that today, preacher? Because I'm in the house of mercy. And I'm talking to the sacrifice who went to a kill called Calvary. And what the law couldn't do under this porch, his grace did. Because why? Because it was given to me when? On the day of Pentecost. All this happened on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because John was trying to point to something. When you don't do it on your own. God's going to give you power because he's going to set you free from the law through the baptism of the Spirit. And when your baptism of the Spirit, when you get your will aligned with your faith, God is going to help you get out of your situation. 
You say today, I want to get out of my situation. Come on, God, I want to get out of the situation. You want someone to come along, put their hand on you, say, in the name of Jesus, deliver them right now, God, and boom, all of a sudden your situation's different. I got your word for you today. Are you ready? Get up. You want your situation to change? Get up. Strap it on your back and start walking. And when others tell you you're lost it, when others tell you and criticize you and try to tell you wrong, jump up and shout and praise God because they confirm to you that you're on the right track. Father, I thank you for your power today. I thank you for your word. Lord, I have felt your anointing flow through me today. I know you've spoken your word today. And God, I pray right now by the help of your grace and your mercy and the house of mercy, God, that you would give us the strength today to let our will and our faith align together. That we can leave here today with the determination to move forward. To get up and to take up our cross and to follow you. I pray these things today. I pray in the name of Jesus that this word would be a seed in our heart. I loose the seed of the word in the hearts of the minds of your people. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. God bless you today. Make sure you greet somebody. Don't forget, if you would, help us. We can do this quickly, if you would. God bless you. Thank you.